What we believe shapes how we live. For those of you who grew up in the 50s and the 60s, you might remember your parents saying to you, children should be seen, but not heard. You were allowed to be in the living room, you were allowed to play with your toys, but you better not make any noise. I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and parenting then was a little bit different. Parenting was about, just keep tabs on your kids. And so mom would put a, a piece of paper on the kitchen table, and I was in late elementary, early junior high, and I would just have to scribble down what I was doing for the day. Out with Dan. She didn't know if that meant I was at Dan's house, if I was at the park, if we were playing sports, where we were together. Just keep tabs on your kids. I have uh, three little munchkins at my house, and um, I was watching them play soccer one day, and one of my friends, who was, uh, all, his kid was also playing, said to me, we will do anything for our children. That was his parenting philosophy, and that meant for him that his wife had to go back to work just to pay for the figure skating lessons that his daughter was going through. What we believe shapes how we live. When I was in my 20s and um, going through college, I would, my summers were spent making as much money as I possibly could so I could afford to go back to school the following fall. That meant summers weren't a whole lot of fun, but I did enough that I was able to graduate college without any debt, and that was pretty worth it. Now summers are different. Now I want to spend time with my family. I want to go camping. I want to get some things done around the house, and I want my kids to have great memories. What we believe are going to totally shape how we live. A man by the name of Paul wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. In writing to the church in Rome, he writes, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Writing another letter, this time not to a church, but to a young pastor, Paul writes, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What we believe shapes how we live, shapes our parenting, shapes our summer vacations, it shapes how we spend our money, it shapes everything about us. Back in March, when we, a few members of our staff, got together and started planning a larger preaching calendar, I had no idea the impact this sermon series misquoted would have. But even after the first couple of weeks, people were coming up to me and saying, this is so refreshing because we were buying into this lie. We were believing this lie and we want to know what the scriptures actually say, where there's misquotes, where it's been twisted, where there's been misunderstanding and know how the good news of Jesus is better than all of that. And today we're going to tackle what I believe is the most misquoted part of scripture. More than anything else, the false promise it makes, the trappings. Are you ready? Money is the root of all evil. Even if you're at home, how many of you have heard this before? Money is the root of all evil. But this creates all sorts of problems. If money is the root of all evil, then what are we supposed to do with it? Are we allowed to earn it? Do we keep it? Do we give it away? Should we, embarrass, should we be embarrassed that we have it? What do we do with money? As one very well-meaning Christian friend once said to me, you know, Dave, Jesus is our perfect example to follow. And he didn't have any money. So what does that mean? Do I trade in my 10-year-old economy car for uh, some pair of Birkenstocks just so I can be more like Jesus? If this is the case, we no longer find ourselves walking down a road with a ditch on either side. 
we would find ourselves walking a tightrope, nearly impossible with either side bringing disaster. You may have heard me talk about the prosperity gospel before and this false idea that if you love Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy and everything will go well. But there's another side as well. Have you ever heard about the poverty gospel? If you really loved Jesus, if you really cared about your faith, you would just give all your money away. You would live in poverty. But is that actually true? If money is the root of all evil, then what are we supposed to do with it? I usually perform a couple of weddings every year. And whenever I marry a couple, I say to them, you have to meet with me for some marriage prep beforehand. The first two sessions, always the same. After that, it's really um, detailed to what that individual couple needs. The first session, always about communication. If you can communicate well with your spouse, you're probably going to have a much healthier life and time together. The second is all about money. We work through the budget, through expectations, and my favorite part, the meaning of money. And I have this young couple sitting before me go through this exercise that I absolutely love. They answer 20 questions about how they value money, and they see it, do they see it as status, security, enjoyment, or control? Now, if I were to ask you which one of these is evil, what would you say? Well, it's obviously control. It's obviously control. If the dad says to his son, you know, son, I will pay for your school as long as you go into medicine, engineering, or architecture. Anything else, you can't even live in my house. And we might laugh, but I have a friend that that exact same thing happened to him. If we see money as control, there might be some problems. But what about the other three? If money itself is the root of all evil, wouldn't all of these be bad? Oh, if money's just about status, you just want to wear nice clothes and drive a nice car and have a nice house so you can impress your friends. If money is about enjoyment, well, shouldn't you be giving that to the poor? If money is about security, do you really trust God? It's been said in many different ways over the years that money is a great servant, but a terrible master. So what does the Bible actually say? If you have your Bibles with you or you have a smartphone, you can download the app. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, that Timothy can be found about midway through the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. And just a free piece of advice, all the T's are in alphabetical order, just so you have that in your back pocket. Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As you flip there, a little bit of background. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to Timothy. And Timothy sees Paul as a close friend. He sees him as a mentor. Timothy has spent time traveling with Paul, listening to him teach, watching God do incredible things through his mentor, and being apprenticed by this brilliant, loving, and spirit-filled Christian. But now Timothy's on his own. He's leading a church, and his mentor, who cares about him deeply, is writing a letter to Timothy. We call it a pastoral epistle. And it's encouraging him to keep strong in the faith, and you may have guessed it already, Timothy, what we believe is going to shape how we live. So let's look at what the Bible really says. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We can breathe a sigh of relief, right? 
It's not a sin. It's not evil to have money. The problem begins when we fall in love with it. So I'll spend just a couple minutes considering that context. If you have your Bibles in front of you, you'll notice that for a love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's just the first half of the verse. The second half of the verse, he says this. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. If that's not quite blunt enough, Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Maybe you've heard the story of the man who knew he was about to die, and so he took out his life savings, he put him in a briefcase, and he put him in the attic of his house. And his wife said, what are you doing? And he goes, well, when I die and go to heaven, I want to grab my briefcase of money and it'll be up there with me when I'm there. A week or so later, he passes away and his wife goes upstairs and checks to see if the briefcase is still there. And sure enough, it is. She mutters under, his, under her breath, I told him he should have put it in the basement. <laughs> Takes a second to catch on to that one, right? As soon as money becomes our primary focus, the logical conclusion is that God isn't. It means the more time we spend focusing on money, the less time we focus on the church, on our family, on our neighbors, and how to make good disciples. If we look to money for safety, for security, for meaning, it's going to leave you disappointed. You will never have enough. And it will rob you of your contentment. After verse 10 is a paragraph break in the beginning of a new idea. So let's look at what Paul says leading up to this quote. This is 1 Timothy 6, verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. We're going to look at what these traps are in just a moment But the warning is clear, that loving money, pursuing money, desiring money more than anything else will ruin your soul. It was John Calvin in the 16th century who said, the human heart is an idol factory and the idol of money might be the greatest idol of all. We love money. We pursue money. We believe it will make us happy, but the false promises leave us a shell of ourselves and always wanting more. The scriptures know the powerful temptation of money and Paul as one of God's greatest ambassadors is warning this young pastor. He's warning you and he's warning me. Don't get sucked in by all that glitters and gold. Examining the context a little bit more, we see verses three to five. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. In the first century, people realized there is great money to be made by being a false prophet for God. A man by the name of Peregrinus, a cynic of Christianity, found that Christian preachers were treated royally, hosted, and often welcomed and supported by wealthy patrons. He would teach whatever people wanted to hear because his wallet got fatter as he did so. 
Other people, like a man by the name of Alexander, would sell false prophecies and find gullible and superstitious people to pay large amounts of money because what Alexander said would make them feel good. And Paul gives us the warning. This love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So what do we do? The first thing is this. Recognize that false promises of money. Some of you might be starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. You're reading your Bible and you're taking notes on a brand new smartphone. This past week, you just bought some brand new clothes for your summer vacation. And speaking of vacation, you've just planned it and it's going to cost a lot of money. False promises of money. Dave, I feel guilty just having money. But listen closely. Having money is not bad. Loving money is more dangerous than we can possibly imagine. Did you catch that? Having money is not bad. Loving money is more dangerous than we can possibly imagine. But now I need to back that up. Moses, standing before the Israelites after 40 years in the desert, and they're about to enter the promised land, says these words in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as to this day. David, Israel's greatest king, prays to God before the entire nation and says this in 1 Chronicles 29, Wealth and honor come from you, O God. You are the ruler of all things. When the Christian church began early on in the first century, the Jews quickly realized, we don't want Christians meeting in their synagogues. So where do you think these Christians met? In the home of wealthy Christian believers who had enough space for a congregation of people to gather. We're definitely going to talk about how to use money well. But I think it's important to begin by saying it's not wrong to have money. The problems begin when we think we're the sole reason that we have money, that we have accomplished something great and powerful all on our own. And you might be thinking, Dave, I have accomplished something great and powerful all on our own. But we need to be reminded that everything we have comes from God. The job you have comes from God. The house you have comes from God. The vehicle you drive, the family you have, the vacation homes you might have, all of it comes from God. And you might say, but Dave, 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 I've worked really hard for this. I am a self-made woman. I am a self-made man. I have made this possible. Who gave you your work ethic? Comes from God. Who gave you your mind to get through college and university and find that great job that you have? It comes from God. Who have been the people who sponsored you, who realized, man, this person is a rising star. That person was placed in your life from God. Everything we have comes from God. Have you ever thought about how lucky we are just to live in Canada? Whether you were born here or chose to move here later on in life, this great country comes from God. Think about a regular day in your life. You hop in your car, which by the way, less than 10% of the people in this world own, and you drive to your favorite grocery store. You have the privilege of going to a grocery store, 
but you might pass one or two other grocery stores on your way because, you know, I like Save-On or Superstore or Co-op or Walmart more than that other place. And then you walk through the supermarket stacked full of goods for your enjoyment. An entire wall of deodorants and shampoos to choose from. Produce that's nicely stacked. Your favorite cereal in a 30-foot-long aisle. You take all that food, you put, bring it back to your car, you hop in your car and you go back home. Probably half of you, I'm guessing, have a home for your car. Some of you might have to drive underneath your apartment, but some of you actually click a button, this door rolls up, and you drive into your own place. A house just for your car. Then you take the bags of groceries out and you put them away. Some of you actually have a room called a pantry that you can stack all that food in. Then you think, well, after these errands and chores, I'm a little bit sweaty and I'm a little bit gross, so I need to go upstairs and I turn this knob and hot water comes out of a shower. Then you get out of your shower and you dry off and you go to your closet. Some of you actually walk into a closet and you stare at all these racks of clothes and what do you say? I have nothing to wear because you're rich. We're rich. All of us in this room are rich, but what we do is we compare that to what other people have and we go, well, I don't have as much as they do. Take another look at verse nine. People who want to get rich fall in temptation and a trap into many fallish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. This is what I wrote down in my notes. The love of money begins with temptation. It turns to desire and it leads to destruction. Most of us in this room probably have a smartphone. The smartphone in your pocket costs more than about 20% of the world could afford on their annual salary. It's not enough. A pastor friend told me, I don't know, six, seven years ago, that a couple came up to him in his church and said, Pastor, bad news, um, we bought a new house. The pastor said, well, that sounds like great news. What do you mean, bad news? And they said, well, the new house, bigger mortgage, we can't afford to give to the church anymore. So how much is enough? Studies have actually been done on this, and the average person would say 10 to 20% more, then that will be enough. If I make $50,000 a year, man, if I made $60,000 a year, then I'd be set. You make $100,000 a year, oh, if I made $120,000, then I could really do the things I want to do. It's something called the tolerance effect. What you couldn't do before, you can now afford, then it becomes normal. So now you need more. Think back to your early 20s. For some of you in the room, you're thinking, I'm there. Maybe you're a college student scraping to ends, make ends meet. Maybe you're a newlywed couple and living in a dingy apartment and you dream about a better life. Wouldn't it be great to sit down in a restaurant rather than just ordering fast food? Can you imagine how great it will be to finally have a condo or a townhouse of our own? I have a vehicle and it gets me to A to B, but man, having a vehicle that's a few years newer, that would be great. And then 10 years pass by and you're in your early 30s and lo and behold, all of it has come true. 
you finally own a townhouse and it's actually brand new and you love it. You have a car, it's a little bit newer, it's not brand new, but it's a little bit newer and you're not embarrassed in front of your friends. And on top of your car and your brand new townhouse, you can still eat out once a month. And for three months, life is awesome. But then you go, you know, my townhouse doesn't have a backyard. And if we're gonna have kids one day, we obviously need a backyard. And there's something about that new car smell that if I had that brand new car, then it'll be great. And eating out, well, we should be able to afford that more than once a month. It's the, rea- it's the tolerance effect. When, what you couldn't do before, you can now afford, and it becomes normal, so now you need more. Our lives become consumed with wanting more and the false promises of money remain. You will never be truly happy. You will always be striving for more and it will ultimately destroy your soul. So far, we focused almost entirely on our desires. But what about that impact society has on us? Whether we talk about the proverbial keeping up with the Joneses or the unrealistic expectations of advertising, we find ourselves in this reality distortion and this warped sense of living. Most of us hang out with people in our own social class. Whether it's the people we hang out with in church, our friends, our family, our neighbors, whatever the case might be, we typically hang out with people who are in that same financial bracket that we are. But there's always one person who has just a little bit more than we do. They have a little bit nicer house. They can afford to put their kids into prep school. Everything they have just seems to be a little bit newer, a little bit shinier, a little bit better. And it's so easy to find ourselves striving for more. That temptation is tantalizing. If only we work harder, if only we put in more hours, if only we get that promotion, if only we expand our business and the enemy wins. Friends, listen closely. The love of money will distract us from the true riches God wants to give you. The love of money will distract us from the true riches God wants to give you. In our pursuit for more, we will lose out on God and we will destroy our soul. Andrew Carnegie became one of the richest men, not only in America, but in the entire world with the incredible success of U.S. Steel. But rather than letting the success get to his head, he wrote a note to self memorandum, and this is what he wrote. Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately, therefore, should I be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character, to continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares, and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time, must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. Listen to this part. I will resign business at 35 but during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. The candor and self-understanding is nothing short of remarkable. And one of his biographers, Joseph Fraser, writes, neither Rockefeller nor Ford nor Morgan could have written this note, nor would they have understood the man who did. But do you know what happens next? Mr. Carnegie did not retire two years later as the profits were too great and those profits 
were never shared with his workers. Listen to this, Annie Dillard, another um, commentator writes, uh, pardon me, biographer writes, every two weeks, the steel workers toiled an inhuman 24-hour shift before getting their sole day off. The best housing they could afford was crowded and filthy. Most died in their 40s or earlier from accidents or disease. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It will destroy you, it will eat you from the inside out, and it will ruin the lives of those around you. The good news of the gospel is that God always offers something better. The second part of today's message is escaping the trap of money. The issue of money is quite difficult to wrestle with. We read this passage, we listen to this message, and we say, okay, I understand that deep-rooted greed for always wanting more isn't good for my soul, but what about that new jacket? What about that kitchen renovation? What about planning my next vacation? What do I do then? And thankfully, Paul um, doesn't leave us hanging, but gives us two things to consider. Picking up in verses six to eight, this is what Paul writes. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. The word contentment means unmoved by external circumstances. We aren't going to let the world dictate what we should do. We're not going to let our neighbors dictate what we're going to do. We're going to say, God, how do I use my money? How do I use this life? How do I give myself completely and wholly and entirely unto you? As I prepared this message, I discovered that more money we have won't make you happy. The reverse is actually true. Having more money for the average person actually means they have difficulty in relationships, they like themselves less, and they worry more because they have nothing to lose. Having more money for the average person means they like themselves less, have more difficulty in relationships, and worry more because they have more to lose. One of my friends in a previous church um, did not come for much money at all. And she told me, Dave, I so much admired my uncle and my cousins because they had money. And me and my brothers and sisters would always look at them and say, oh man, if only we could be like our cousins. And then with a tear in her eye, she said, one day my uncle came to visit us. She said, we had a big family meal and we laughed and we told stories and she came from a really musical family. So they gathered around the piano after supper and they played music and they laughed and they enjoyed themselves. And she said, Dave, my uncle just broke down in tears and said, I know you guys look up to me and my family because we have money, but my marriage is a mess and my kids don't talk to me. You have true richness right in front of you. How often do we stop and thank God for what we actually have? God, I thank you for this roof over my head. God, I thank you that we have food in the pantry and in the fridge. I thank you that we have this amazing church. I thank you for the friends and the family that you've given me. I thank you, God, for what you have given me is over and above what I could hope for or expect. You see, the problems begin when we confuse luxuries with necessities. When we think, oh, I can't afford the keg, so this burger just doesn't taste as good. Oh, I want to go on that cruise, not the spray park with my kids. 
oh, I really want to go to an Oilers game, not watch highlights on TSN. The scriptures aren't saying you're not allowed to have new stuff or nice stuff. Budget for it, save for it, pay for it with cash, but don't kill yourself trying to get it. Take another look at verse six. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Our real pursuit should be godliness. That's what we strive for. That's where we put our effort. That should be our chief end. Our lives are pretty darn good. We thank God for that. Now, how do we use them for God's glory? If contentment captures our mind, then generosity captures our heart. And Paul makes this clear, jumping down to verses 17 to 19. Command those, says Paul, who are rich. Pardon me. Who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul's words to Timothy are surprisingly moderate. Personally, I read these first five words, command those who are rich, and I get myself ready for the verbal blow that's about to come. But Paul doesn't do that. He's not a prophet who's yelling at false teachers. This isn't Jesus dressing down a group of Pharisees. This is a well-respected mentor writing to his young protege, reminding him to tell the rich that everything they have comes from God. Don't be arrogant about it, but live generously. I have a friend from a previous church who does really well for himself, owns a business, um, makes very good money. Him and I became pretty good friends, and he said to me, Dave, I found out what the average person in our community makes. That's my salary for the year. That alone is impressive. But then he continues on, I also looked up what the average um, person makes who does the job that I employ. The people that work for me, I pay two to three dollars an hour more than the average. Then I take the profits from my business, And yeah, I put some back into the business because that's how the business grows. But I give exponentially more to missions. And he said to me, because what better return on investment can I have not building up my own kingdom and my own wealth, but seeing the kingdom of God spread in our community and around the world. If you're new to church and you've been checking us out for a month or less and you might be asking yourself, is Dave about to talk about money? Is he going to ask for money at this point? I sure am. (laughs) And I have the audacity to say it's darn good for you. Church tradition talks about this idea of 10% of what you earn, give back to the church. The funny thing is the New Testament doesn't mention that word not one single time. In my previous church, I had the privilege of leading this lovely young lady to Jesus. We loved her. We baptized her. We watched her and her family uh, come to church regularly. Her kids came to our equivalent of summer day camp. Then one day she came into my office with tears in her eyes and she said, Dave, I want to become a member of the church. I said, then why are you crying? And she said, because I can't afford to give a tithe. I'm a single mom. I have two kids at home. My ex-husband isn't paying me any child support and I'm putting myself through school to become a nurse so I can eventually pay and I, I, I don't have any money. 
what followed as one of the most beautiful things I've ever been a part of as a church. Our board got together and they came with, to this young single mom and they said, give us all your expenses. And she wrote it all out. Here's my mortgage, here's my utilities, here's my cell phone, here's my car payment, uh, here's my grocery bill, here's everything. And our board wrote a check to cover two months of all her expenses. And they said to her, what does generosity look like? And she goes, I, I think I could do like $5 a week. And they smiled and they said, then give $5 a week. And if you're in that boat and you're thinking, Dave, I have no idea how I'm gonna pay my mortgage. I have no idea how I'm gonna pay for my childcare. I have no idea how I'm gonna put food in the fridge and come talk to us because we too have a benevolent plan. But I also ask, where could you start? And it might seem so insignificant that it's almost humorous. It might be a toonie each week. It might be a $5 bill each week, but start somewhere. For others of you in this room, you might be thinking, Dave, I'm, I'm in a different place. And I've been attending Ellerslie for a while or I'm brand new to church, but this idea of tithe, it's, it's new to me. Well, let's just pick a round number and say you make $5,000 a month. Some of you obviously make less than that. Some of you obviously make more than that. It's just a round number. And 10% can be a pretty intimidating. Dave, that's 500 bucks a month. That's a, that's a good car payment. That might be my food bill. That's a lot. It absolutely is. But where can you start? Is it $100 a month? Is it $200 a month? Is it 3% instead of 10%? Where can you start? Because here's the secret that God is uh, allowing us to be a part of. The antidote for love of money is not more money. The antidote for the love of money is to give it away. And some of you have been in this room for years. Some of you have been Christians longer than I've been alive. When's the last time you evaluated your giving? And maybe you were in your 20s and you were in that dingy apartment. You remember wondering if your car would get you to work and you remember wondering if you could ever take your spouse on a nice date and 10% was real sacrifice. But now 30 years has gone by and you're still giving 10% to the church and thank you for that. But is it generous still? Is it time to evaluate and say, God, I wonder if I really could give a little bit more? And if you're sitting going, Dave, you just want the money because it's gonna come into your pocket some way. No, it won't. <laughs> you can talk to our board members. It will not come to me. In fact, if you're thinking this is all about money and everything for what's taking place here at Ellerslie, then give it somewhere else. Give it to the Pregnancy Care Center. Give it to Aaron Richard, who was here two weeks ago and talking about his great work in Dubai. Give it to Lone Prairie Camp. Recognize that the antidote for the love of money is not more money, but it's generosity. And yet another one of Paul's letters, this time written to the church in Corinth, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, I am not commanding you, but I wanna test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus never asks us to do something that he isn't willing to do himself. 
about a year ago at this time, we were going through the book of Revelation, and we would occasionally talk about the throne room of heaven. Can you imagine how beautiful that must be? Can you imagine what it must have been like for Jesus sitting with God the Father and the Holy Spirit? The beauty, the majesty, the splendor, the perfection. And Jesus saying, I'm going to give this up. Because humanity needs me. And he gave up all the riches, all the glory, all the beauty, all the splendor of heaven. And he came down to earth and was born in a stable in a manger to a very average family. He left the throne room for a dirty stable because he believed you were worth it. He sacrificed not just money, but comfort and his very life so that we might experience the joy and the glory and the majesty and the splendor of heaven. While Jesus gave up everything, he's saying to you and he's saying to me, will you give a portion back? How much is between you and God? But that others might see and hear and know the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for everything you've given us. Thank you for the incredible blessing that we have to live in Canada. And just simply living here almost puts us in the top 5% richest people in the world. But God, we so easily look at what we don't have or the friends that we have who have more than us. God, forgive us when we fall into that love of money place. Help us instead to be people who are generous, to be a group of people who are content that leads to godliness and that we would be reminded that everything we have comes from you and to give it back to our church to give it to our families, to give it to our neighbors, to live lives of generosity so that people might see, know, and hear the good news of Jesus Christ, your son. We pray this in your holy and most powerful name. Amen.